Good morning, everyone. Hey, uh, how many of you that have children ever have been asked questions from your kids relentlessly? And that you would say something, and then they would say, why? And then you would say, because you give them the answer, and then they would say, well, why? And then you'd say, because of the, and then And then finally, you just got so exasperated from answering other questions that you would just say, because I'm the mommy, that's why. Or I'm the daddy, that's why. End of, end of questions. You know, you, it, it's amazing how kids have so many questions about so many things. And, and, and I know sometimes as followers of Christ, we have a lot of questions about how can we believe certain things to be true. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to jump in for the next couple months questions that people are actually asking. Um, these might be people in your family. These might be your co-workers. These might be uh, some uh, neighbors of yours that have asked really good questions concerning Jesus, concerning suffering, concerning the Bible. How can you believe that, that, that the Bible is the only true uh, sacred scriptures? Um, how can Jesus be the only way to God? How, how come God allows suffering in the world today? What, what is sin? Uh, all these things uh, we're going to jump into in the next nine weeks. And so here's my prayer. For those of you that are here today that have questions about these things, which is okay to have those questions. Maybe you're here and you're even a follower of Christ and you have questions like all those things that we saw in the video. You may say, yeah, those are some really valid things that I have questions about that I'm not too sure about that some people have asked even me those questions and I wasn't really sure how to even answer them. Well, we're here to help you to give you some firm foundation to know that what you believe is true and that you can back it up with evidence. And then there may be some of you here today that you are kind of like me when I was growing up. I really wasn't against the Bible. I, you know, I even, you know, read it occasionally. We went to church growing up, but I was just kind of indifferent to the Bible. I really didn't impact me. It really didn't make a big difference in my life. I, I wasn't pursuing reading the Bible or really caring about really what it said. It kind of had an impact in my life. It kind of didn't have an impact in my life. I was kind of indifferent to it. But if the Bible truly is the Word of God, then that changes everything, doesn't it? That, that should really, if, if it does, then we should really pursue knowing that this is either true or it isn't, because if everything rests on that, then Christianity rises and falls on this truth of the Word of God, and that Jesus is actually who He said He is, and that the Word of God truly is His Word and not man's Word. So we need to, listen, life is short. How many know that? And, and, and we need to realize that we, we just can't let each day go by and just say, well, I'm just indifferent to it, whatever. If, if, if we're really going to be smart about our lives and knowing what happens after I die, and is this world all that there is, or is there an afterlife, and if the Bible speaks to those things, I need to seek this stuff out. I need to find the answers. And, and I love this. There's this uh, a quote 
uh, by Tim Keller, wonderful pastor in New York City. He wrote a book called Reason for God. Great book. I would recommend you reading it. But it was called a book Reason for God. And he made a great point concerning this. He said, people who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing question of a smart skeptic. It's interesting how people can be very indifferent to the Word of God until tragedy strikes their life. And then, all of a sudden, life becomes very real, doesn't it? All of a sudden, when something happens that we can't explain or that's beyond our control, all of a sudden we begin to ask questions. We begin to turn to things for answers. And many people, thank God, maybe will turn to the Word of God or turn to God to try to find answers of why they're going through. Maybe that's where you are here today. But I want you to realize that that the Bible that you believe in today is not like any other religious writings that we can hold on the same level. Um, I don't want you to be indifferent to that today. I I, I want you to know and be convinced that that what we are reading today, that that the 66 books that we find in the Old Testament, New Testament, are indeed God's Word, that you can trust it today. And I want to back that up with evidence for you today, that you don't have to check your brains in at the door to believe that what you're reading today is indeed God's Word. I love what Chuck Colson, he made a great point when he said, the Christian faith is not this irrational leap. Examine objectively the claims of the Bible are rational propositions well supported by reason and evidence. And for those of you who simply trust the Bible, you can have support for what you believe. And for those of you who are skeptical, which is okay to ask questions, you can see that there's overwhelmingly evidence that supports that the Bible is indeed the Word of God and not just some writings that some people just made up and said it was the Word of God. So if the Bible is indeed God's Word, then we have to look at it a couple of ways. Let's just, let's just get this out right out this morning. Let's just understand this. If this, what we're reading today uh, and what we have in our hands today as the Word of God, then we need to get a couple things straight. We, we must understand that this, if this is true... If this is God's word, then this must be the final authority. We can't hold the word of God up and then hold it up with man's traditions on the same level. We have to say, if we're going to live our lives, if we're going to conduct the church the way God wants the church to be conducted, if we're going to conduct our lives in the way that God wants our lives to be conducted, if we're going to live morally before a holy God, then this has to be the final word. Not my objective thinking. Not my feelings, not man's traditions, but what does God have to say? So in our church, we do the best we can to rely on God's word as the final truth and authority on all things. Period. So if we believe it, then, then this, it can't be this, and then, and then something else to bring it alongside. It has to be this, and this alone is the final authority. If, if it is God's word, 
then it has to be absolute truth. There is no truth that is higher than God's word. And this is where we've gotten into a lot of trouble in our world today. There's this moral truth or this moral relativism that whatever is truth for you is good for you. And whatever is truth for somebody else is truth for them. Um, I sat down and watched a very interesting historical uh, documentary on the rise of the Third Reich in Germany, in Nazi Germany. It, I mean, I'm interested in history anyways. I, I've done a lot of um, research on that and read a lot on, uh, on World War II. But, but this, there were things that were brought in this documentary that blew me away, how people blindly followed a dictator and moved further and further away from this truth to a man's truth. And how easily a whole country was blinded. And what was interesting was, many of you may have known this, but at the end when the Allied forces came in and liberated many of the concentration camps where the Jews died, what they would do is many people in those local communities, they either knew or didn't know what was going on, but what they did is they brought them through the concentration camp and showed them the mass slaughter that happened within those concentration camps. And they had live uh, reels of, of, of live footage of people going in and coming out. You should have seen the look on their faces of how their country lied to them of what really was going on behind the scenes of the Third Reich. And, and how, when I was watching, I, could, I just saw how deprived and how evil the human heart really is. And the further we get away from God's moral standard and his moral truth, that's what you end up with. Am I right? And we can see it in history and we need to be very careful. So we need to believe that the word of God is God's absolute truth, which will then set the Bible apart from any other religious writings or book. So what we have... What we, what we can rely on is, in the Bible, we can rely not only on internal truth, that we see that the Bible is true internally, and we're going to jump into that this morning, but also we have external evidence that proves that the Bible is truly God's Word. So those are the two things that I want to look at today. I want to look at the internal evidence that we have that makes the Word of God true and, 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 and God's Word. And then also we have this external evidence that also proves that the Word of God is what it is. Because there's other uh, uh, sacred, so-called sacred writings that other religions have, and they will say, well, our, our teachings are true internally, and we believe that it's truth. But what's interesting that if you hold it up to the scrutiny of history or external evidence, it falls flat on its face. The Bible doesn't, which is very interesting. And so we're going to look at both of those, which sets the Bible apart from every other sacred writing. So let me give you a couple things here. If you're taking notes, I would write these down. I would write these passages down for yourself. So if someone comes up to you and asks you some questions like, well, how do you know the Bible is the Word of God? You can say, let me give you a couple things here just to chew on. And so, uh, and so you can help other people with their understanding about the Word of God. If a co-worker or someone else asks you these questions, these are just very practical things here. I'm not not going to get very preachy. I might get preachy, but I'm, these are just practical things I want to give you this morning so that you have some ammo in, in, in your arsenal so you can know how to defend your faith and why you believe it. Not to put somebody back in a corner, 
right? What good is it to cut someone's nose off and then give them a rose to smell? That's not our purpose here this morning. Our purpose here this morning is to allow you to know that what you believe is true, but also to help other people that have questions. And that's okay. Listen, 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 listen. Now I'm going to preach. I just lied to myself. Now I'm going to preach. Listen, if somebody asks you questions, don't get defensive with them. Just don't say like I did as a dad or a mom because that's the way it is. It's God's word. And if you don't believe it, you're going to hell, okay? So there. You know, listen, don't get defensive. People ask questions because they're good questions. Allow them to ask questions. It may take them a while to, to understand it, to work through it in their lives. Let them work through it. That's okay. Sometimes it's okay to leave things dangling with people. Listen, you don't have to wrap it all up in five minutes. Okay, now, do you believe it? Let's pray. Right now. Let's pray and get it. Let's get it done with Jesus right now. Listen. Sometimes it's okay because, you know what, they may come back the next day. I remember I had a group of people that I sat with in high school at this one table. And I'd bring my Bible, and we'd just have discussions. And it was so much fun because they would say, okay, what about this, Barden? Okay? And I'd say, okay, let's talk about that tomorrow. And it's interesting because then I'd have someone to sit with at, at, at school. I'd rather be sitting all by myself. So it was kind of fun. And I had friends that were interested because we just kind of throw out questions like, like the ones we're going to ask today. So it's okay to let people dangle on some of these things and let them keep asking questions. Okay, let, let's look at some internal evidence. One of the most incredible things about the Word of God that I love about the internal evidence of the Word of God is its unity. How the Bible is unified. Listen for a moment. The Bible was written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors, yet it does not contradict itself. Think of this for a moment. 1,500 years, 40 different people God used to write it. Can you imagine getting 40 different authors together on one topic, okay, and then, and then, um, then you know they would be all over the. They'd have come from all different angles and, and, and different perspectives. But can you imagine getting forty different authors to try to write about one topic over fifteen hundred years? Authors with all different kind of backgrounds that we have in the Word of God: fishermen, doctors, prophets, kings, scribes, religious leaders, tax collectors, shepherds. Can you imagine trying to get all those different people together and write on one topic? It would be a train wreck. But yet the Word of God is so unified. And why is there such unity? It's because God was the initiator. And I love this passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 and 17, because Paul, the Apostle Paul, explains to Timothy why the Word of God is so coherent. Why is the Word of God so unified. And here's the reason why. The answer is here. Why, in the internal evidence of the Word of God, why is it so unified with being written over so many years by so many different people? He speaks to Timothy and he says, and, and how from childhood you have been equated with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And this is what he says in verse 16. Very important. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the Son of that the, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Now listen to Second Peter one twenty through twenty one. 
Peter speaks here too, about the origins of the Scripture. Where did they originate? Did they originate from the heart of man or from the heart of God? Well, Peter says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about from the prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, through uh, th- uh, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what these passages teach us about the Bible is that the Bible did not originate in the minds of man, but in the mind of God. That word inspired literally means divinely breathed into. What God did was, is he breathed out and then into man. And so what we see in these passages is that the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired these men. All scripture is inspired by God through the power and the presence of of the Holy Spirit. So what is interesting here is God used the human author to write what God desired without overriding their personality or their style. They weren't just robots that dictated this is you know that God inspired them through the power of the Holy Spirit and used their personalities in their writings and we can see that in the uh, different books that we have in the Bible. So so what we have here is a book that is inspired by God himself, who he uses humans as his writers. So the author of the Bible is the Holy Spirit. The author, the inspiration of all these things, is God himself, not man. So there's a great internal evidence with those two passages. Another compelling eternal evidence of the Bible is prophecy. So not only do we have this perfect unity of the Bible, but we also have internally prophecy that validates that the scriptures are from God. Let me just camp here for just a minute because this is very important to understand. For a Jewish reader of the scriptures, they would look to prophecy to validate what God was speaking to them. This was very important for you and I, many of us that are Gentiles here. We may not look to Old Testament prophecy to prove who Jesus was. That that may not make a huge difference for us living here today in 2014. But for the Jewish reader, ancient prophecy spoke of a Messiah that would come and save them. And so for them, these fulfillment of prophecy was huge to authenticate the very person that would be fulfilling those things. And when God would speak to a prophet, if they weren't speaking the word of God, they could be stoned to death. That's how important prophecy was in Old Testament times. And so I want you to realize today that prophecy validates the very thing that God was speaking in his word. There there are hundreds of prophecies in the Bible. Biblical prophecy is very important component in validating God's word. Now, there are 300 prophecies alone in the prediction of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And what is interesting is these facts and these prophecies are not vague, but very specific to what Jesus came to do. And Jesus even said, I've come to fulfill the prophecies that were spoken about me. He said, even as he opened up the scroll in the synagogue of Isaiah, he said, this very word you've just seen accomplished before your very eyes. I am the one that he is speaking about. Jesus, Jesus made no qualms 
that he was there to fulfill scripture and prophecy. We see it in the New Testament. It's very real. And so even even he says, Jonah in the belly of the three days and in the, in, in, in the great fish, he says, so will the son of man be in the earth for three days? I mean, he, he did not make any qualms about who he was and why he came to fulfill ancient prophecies hundreds of years before he stepped foot on this earth as God's son. So here we see it was predicted. These are specific prophecies alone. And, and I could go through all 300, but let's just, of not only his first coming, but his second coming. But here, here are these predictions of Christ. It was predicted where Jesus would be born. It was predicted that a star would be a sign of the Messiah. Uh, there's prophecies of his lineage, how, Jesus would, how much Jesus would be betrayed for by his betrayers, how he would die, that he would rise again. Uh, wise men coming to Jerusalem looking for Jesus got answers from the scribes who understood biblical prophecy. So when, when these wise men from the east came and looked for this Messiah that was supposed to be born, and most likely they had ancient scriptures that they were following and knew the Messiah was going to be born, they came in Jerusalem and said, okay, where is this king of yours? And so everybody starts scrambling. So well, let's get out the scribes because they know the word of God. And so what the scribes did was they looked at their own scripture, their own prophecies. And they told the wise men that Jesus would be born where? In Bethlehem. And guess where Jesus was? He was in Bethlehem. Go figure. This prophecy by Micah hundreds of years earlier would predict where exactly the Messiah would be born. Now, here's the interesting thing about this whole thing. Don't you think everybody in Jerusalem would have just packed up and headed the five short miles to Bethlehem to see the Messiah that would be born? Nobody went. The only ones that went were the wise men. That's why they were wise men. They were the only ones that went. That shows you, listen, that shows you the hardness of man's heart to even have the word of God. You think people would be like, whoa, we need to check this thing out. That's how hardened their hearts were because they did not want their lives to be disturbed. And and listen, this I'm going to wrap this whole thing up today because I can give you all the proof in the world that God's word is God's word. And our hearts can still be hardened to it. You know what? When, when we sang, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, I used to sing that all the time in the church I grew up in. In the church I grew up in, they didn't really preach salvation at all. They didn't, they didn't preach, you know, justification by faith and that we're sinners and we need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and man must be born again. It was just church. It was just, we went to church. It was fine. It was nice. But it was just church. But I'll tell you what, as we were singing that hymn, I just thought to myself, all the wasted years, I sang that song and never really believed it. And now I'm singing it and I believe it because God has changed my heart. And those words are true to me now. So here I'm singing that hymn and I'm crying like a baby. And I can remember when I was 10 years old, I was crying because I was like, when is this service going to end? It's torture, right? And it's amazing how God, through his word and through the Holy Spirit, when he changes a person's heart, everything changes. Those men were wise because they sought out the Messiah. And so, listen, it is astronomical the probability of these prophecies coming true in just one man. 
it's just, you can't even, it's so astronomically out there, you can't even understand how, how hard it would be just for these prophecies to come true in one man. And Jesus, I could give you so many more. Listen, if, 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 if you want a good book, Josh McDowell wrote a great book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And much of my research came from that book. So if you want a good book and you say, Pastor, that's because I'm just really, I am just scratching the surface, really, of this whole thing. So if you want something deep, deeper, Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, is an excellent book that will help you to dig deeper in all these. And he goes through so many different prophecies that uh, Jesus fulfilled. And here's the third one, and I kind of got ahead of myself. I'm sorry, I got a little excited. But here's the third internal evidence. It's just basically the power of God's word to change lives. This is the thing that you, this is the thing. I mean, I can give you all the internal evidence of prophecy and the unity of the word of God. But you know what's, what's amazing is when God's word changes somebody's life like he did me. God changed my life through the power of his Holy Spirit, through the hearing of God's word. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by what? By the word of God. That's what changed my life from an unbeliever, one who would just sit there and couldn't wait for church to get over it, to one who, who bowed before the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Internally, God changed my heart. I became a follower of Jesus Christ and who desired now to read his word. It's, listen, it's amazing to me. I, I, just, I know this is my story. This is my personal story. But it's just amazing to me how at one moment I could care less about reading God's word unless we had to go to church on Sunday and go to Sunday school and read it to a, a teenager of 16 years old who had now the Bible on my nightstand who wanted to read through the Bible and actually know what it says. What changed? Something happened in my heart. God changed my heart and imparted His Holy Spirit and caused me to become a believer who was once blind and now could see. And now I had this desire that could only come from God, only come through God's grace and His mercy, that now changed my heart from someone who could care less to someone who actually wanted to know God. See, for some of you sitting here today, you understand the power of a changed life and how God changed your life and how by you reading His Word, how your life has been changing and changing and changing and and, and how God has redirected your path and caused you to walk in His truth now when you used to walk in ignorance and in the ways of the world. Amen? I mean, that's what His Word does. And I love this passage. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 says this. For the Word of God is alive and powerful. It's powerful. It's sharper than any sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Isn't that neat when it does it? When you're reading God's Word and God just pricks your heart and you're like, oh man, He got me again. He judged my thoughts and my intentions. Only God's Word can do that. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before His eyes. And He is the one to whom we are accountable. I think the most compelling argument for the Word of God is the lives that have been changed by it. Can I have an amen, 830 crowd? It's the power to transform, to heal, to correct, to convince, to restore. Many of you are here today and you can testify that it was through the power of God's word that changed your life. And for me, it was that truth that spoke to my wayward heart. And I believe that the Hebrew writer captures it so well that his word speaks to my innermost beings like nothing else can. 
So those are just three internal things. Very quickly, let me, let me, let me go to some external things. Because, because more than not, this is what the person sitting next to you at, at your job are going to be interested in. Because you can give them those three things and they're like, well, that's nice because that's what you believe. That's nice. That's good for you. If that works for you, then good for you. You ever have someone patronize you with that? I'm like, oh, brother, give me a break. You know? so, so you're going to get that, right? But don't say that because then they won't talk to you again. So don't do that, okay? Say, so that's okay. You know, I'm praying for you because I don't want you to go to hell. Okay, but anyways, no, don't do that. Okay, so let's look at the external evidence for the Word of God because this is where many people are very interested in what separates uh, our sacred writings from every other writings that people feel are sacred. I believe one of the most overwhelming uh, external evidences that we have for the Word of God is the amount of manuscripts we have. These are ancient writings that we pull from to, to create what we have here today in the Word of God. Let me just share a couple of facts here for you. There are over 5,366 Greek copies to draw from just from the New Testament. Not including the Old Testament, we have over 25,000 copies and portions to draw from. 25,000. Okay, some of you are saying, okay, that's nice, but let, let, me, let me put that, let me juxtapose that to other ancient writings in antiquity that we can compare that to, to show you how this thing just completely separates itself from every other ancient writings, whether it's sacred or secular, how the Bible distances itself completely away from every other ancient writing in antiquity. Um, the closest book that we have at all in antiquity is Homer's Iliad, and it has 643 copies, which is the most famous book in ancient Greece. It's, it's, it's interesting that we don't doubt many ancient writings, which we have no original copies of, whether it's Shakespeare or Homer's Iliad, and we teach those in school and we believe those are truth. Isn't that interesting? Uh, uh, Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars has only 10 ancient copies written a thousand years after the original. And what makes the Bible so incredible about this external evidence is that the Bibles have manuscripts as close as 50 years to the original. That's incredible. And so we can, we can verify that this thing was not a legend that just grew over time, that, that people kept... Adding to it. I want you to... Remember when the Da Vinci Code came in? Everybody go, oh, the Da Vinci Code. What are we going to do, Pastor? All Christianity is going to fall because of the Da Vinci Code. Tom Hanks in one movie is going to topple Christianity. Okay, listen, listen. Here's what's interesting about the Da Vinci Code. They tried to prove, whatever, that through writings, ancient writings, that Jesus was actually married and had kids and married Mary, whatever, blah, 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 through these, through these writings. And what they tried to disprove about the Word of God is that the church itself, through an early council, was the one that created the Word of God. Let me just say that that is so wrong and so historically incorrect. When the church came together in 300 A.D., around that time, what they were doing was they were coming against heretics who were, who were trying to bring uh, teachings into the church that weren't uh, uh, congruent with the Word of God. All the church did was this. All the church did was to authenticate 
what was already being read amongst all the churches hundreds of years earlier. And what the church did was, is they say, we have 27 books in the New Testament, and we're just here to validate what the church is already uh, reading, what they're already using, and we're just here to validate that, to canonize this, so that, so that, so that other writings and later writings, such as these weird, like you watch the History Channel, they're going, the Word of God, books that are not included in the Word of God. Watch it at 8. I was like, oh no, what's going to happen? These weren't added. Christianity's going to fall. Let me just say this. Is that all those writings were written way after. And what they do is because the church validated these 27 books, they were used to refute these other heretical books because they were so out there. And so that's why we have the canon that we have today. It's our rule. It's our standard to come against heretical teaching. That's all the Da Vinci Code is. It's just showing heretical teaching, thinking, well, it was the church's idea to not include those things. No, it wasn't. It wasn't the church's idea. The church was just coming against it by saying, it's not lining up with what we already have is to be truth. And so let's be careful when people say, what about these? What about these? Those were written so far after by heretics. And then, and then what begins to happen is it circulates as legend. And then people think that the church had some idea, some conspiracy. It was a conspiracy not to add it because they didn't want to show you the whole truth. That is so far from the truth. Here's the reason why. We have so many manuscripts that can test each other. And because we can draw from so many other manuscripts, we can say that what we have here today is true. And when another manuscript comes in, that doesn't line up with the 27 books that we have in the canon that we have today, we can say, no, it doesn't line up with this truth. So we can move that aside and say, no, that's heretical teaching. That was written way after the fact. And that's, and that's what the church refuted in many of these councils uh, in the early church history time. Now, here's another interesting fact. Even if we didn't have the manuscripts that we have today, we have enough quotations from the early church fathers from the second and third centuries that we could reconstruct the entire New Testament with only 11 verses missing. That's crazy. We have enough quotations from the early church fathers that we could recreate the whole New Testament with only 11 verses missing. That is crazy. So what does this all mean? What all this means is that the Bible that we have today is accurate to the original writings. You can trust it. This, what you are holding in your hands today, 2014, you can trust it with your life. And it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. With all the things that have come against the Word of God, how they've tried to destroy the Word of God, it hasn't changed, and it's still changing lives today. Can I get an amen? 830 crowd. Amen. Okay, now let me give you a second uh, 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 external evidence and this is historical, the historical accuracy of the Bible, because this is where a lot of maybe, uh, you know, archaeologists will come in and say, well, we, you know, this isn't true and this time didn't happen, blah, blah, blah. Here, here's what's amazing fact about the Bible is that the, 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 the Bible's purpose, first of all, is to speak of God's redemptive plan for man. It, it's spiritual in nature. It's God speaking to man and his plan for us. It's not a science book or necessarily a, a historical book, yet the Bible is actually built on historical events that can be proven. 
That's what's amazing about this. So when someone says, well, these, these things are just fables and, and, and these are history that never happened. Well, what's interesting is, is that through archaeology, we can actually find out that these events actually happened. And so the Bible can be proven through historical inve- investigation. Now, what's interesting about this is we even have secular historians that we can draw from in the first century who wrote about Christianity and Josephus being one of them who actually wrote about Jesus himself. So this is not a fairy tale. This is something that is historically true. This is, this is the issue with many other religious writings. They can't be proven historically. This is a big, huge problem with the Church of the Latter-day Saints or the Mormons or their Book of Mormon, which they hold up in, with complete authority against the Word of God with the same level of authority. The, the thing that they have to wrestle with and the thing that they have to deal with is that their historical claims, many of their historical claims cannot be verified. And so they have a lot of problems historically with the Book of Mormon. And the reason why is it because it was written by man and not God. So many critics have believed different historical accounts in the Bible were false or fables. Two of them, let me just give you two of them. Two of them being the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, where God destroyed it, and the walls of Jericho, the way they fell down. Now, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah uh, was thought to be a fable, but evidence revealed that these cities actually existed, and the way that they were destroyed in the biblical text were in fact backed by archaeological evidence. There's a, great, there's a great salt deposit right in that area too. It's just so funny. Um, an excavation, just saying, I mean, it's true. An excavation in 1930 of Jericho revealed that the walls of Jericho indeed fell outward so the Israelites could climb over them and defeat the city. Everything that happened in Jericho when the Israelites took it over was corroborated through archaeological evidence. Every single detail, which they thought never was true. Many times the attempt was to even destroy the Bible. And we see in in, in history, specifically in AD 303, the Roman emperor Diocletian issued an edict to destroy Christianity in their Bible. And the persecution that followed was brutal. They even built a monument that said the name of Christian is extinguished. Yet the Bible is the number one bestseller of all times. And Jesus still saves. Voltaire, a French philosopher in the 1700s, made this prediction. He said, 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible in the earth except the one that is looked upon and an antiquarian curiosity seeker. That's what he predicted. No more Bibles 100 years from when he predicted it in the 1700s. 100 years later, Voltaire is dead. And what's interesting about Voltaire, after his death, his own press and house were being used to print and store Bibles by the Geneva Bible Society. Don't tell me God don't have no sense of humor, okay? Because he does, okay? 100 years from the day Voltaire made this prediction, the first edition of his work sold for 11 cents in Paris. 
But the British government paid the Tsar of Russia a half million dollars for an ancient Bible manuscript. It is wonderful to know that the Bible we have today can be trusted and it is held true through the test of time. Barry Leventhal made a very interesting, he's a, uh, his, his heritage and his, his, his ethnic background is, is Jewish and he became a follower of Jesus Christ as his Messiah. And he made this quote, which I love. He said, there are none who are as deaf as those who do not want to hear. And I can remember hearing a story when we uh, invited the Voice of the Martyrs, who are a ministry that reaches the persecuted church around the world. And I remember we had one gentleman who came into our church and he spoke about how they smuggle Bibles into Vietnam, which is illegal. And if you get caught, you you could easily get arrested. And he told me that when he smuggled Bibles into Vietnam, what they would do, they would go to these small home churches. Some of them only have bits and pieces of the Word of God, but those bits and pieces that they have, they'll read over and over and over and over and over again and memorize them. And then verbally, they'll pass it on to another group. And he told the story of a woman who was married and had children, and on her motorcycle, she had these Bibles that, they, that, that a church desperately wanted to have in one of these small uh, uh, house underground house churches and he can remember as he was she was riding her her motorcycle she kept looking back looking back. he goes why do you keep looking back she goes i'm worried someone's following us she says if you get caught they'll just deport you back to the united states she goes if i get caught i'll get arrested and thrown in prison for having bibles on my possession and here we are in the united states and we have 65 bibles in our house alone and they become relics, right? They become relics. But these people that are giving their life for Jesus Christ, they're on the front line, realize that the Word of God is what gives them life. And this woman is willing to risk her life that others can find life through the Word of God. I read this story from the Book of the Martyrs, and and the Voice of the Martyrs put out this book about those not only in modern day but in church history who have given their life for God and, and for the testament of Jesus Christ. And I read this story in this book by the Voice of the Martyrs. It's called Jesus Freaks. And it, it was just a, it just grabbed my heart about a woman who gave everything for the Word of God. And I wanted to finish by reading this to you because listen, there are none who are as deaf as those who do not want to hear. And I want you to hear what God does when he transforms a life. And this is, this is a woman who lived in, in Derby, England, Joan Waste, in the 1500s. And I want you to just listen to her story. It says, The ragged old man looked up as the young woman entered his cell. He had to admire her faithfulness. Even though she was totally blind, Joan Waste made her way through the streets of Derby, rain or shine. Hello, John Hurt, she called cheerfully. Holding out a small book, she asked, Please, can you read to me today? Well, what chapter would you like, like to hear today? The old man answered, smiling. Locked in a debtor's prison, with never a visitor beside Joan, he had little else to do. Although Joan Wace was born blind, she was never idle. When she was little, she helped her father make rope. Later, when she was 12, she learned to knit socks and sleeves. She kept practicing and practicing until she knitted very well. 
During the reign of King Edward, churches began to offer reading from the Bible in English instead of only in Latin. Joan went to church daily to hear the Word of God, and it dramatically changed her life. She had a tremendous desire to understand Scripture and to have it printed in her memory, even though she was blind and could not read, and the, and the New Testament and the, and, the, and the scriptures were very expensive to own on your own. She decided to get one of her own since she was from a poor family. It took her a very long time to save enough money to even buy one. Then Joan had to find someone who would read it to her. And then she met John Hurt, who agreed to read her a chapter a day. And one day when he was too sick to read, she would pay, she would pay others to read it to her. Joan had an unusual good memory and she became very familiar with the Bible. And by the time she was 22, she could repeat many entire chapters by heart. When Queen Mary took the throne, laws were passed making it illegal to own a Bible in English. Joan was brought before the bishop because of her beliefs, charged with heresy and put in prison. She was questioned again and again, and finally she said, I cannot forsake the truth. I beg you, please stop troubling me. And after that, she wouldn't say another thing. The death sentence was finally pronounced, and she was handed over to the sheriff. And on August 1st, 1556, she was led to the stake. There she knelt down and prayed. And then she stood up and said, Please pray for me. She urged everyone watching. The actioner fastened her to the stake and the flames were lit. Joan treasured the word of God, going to great trouble to store it in her heart. The truth she found in its pages brought her great strength. Today, many people have access to scriptures, but never take the time to memorize it and meditate on it. Do you? See, here's the problem in America. We seem to have so much, but so little. We seem to have so much food where we don't have to worry about famine, but yet there's a famine in our land of spirituality. And sometimes I think it's like a glutton's attitude when you have so much and so much. We're so glutton to the Word of God that we really don't understand the power of the Word of God to change lives. Some of you are here today, and I want to encourage you that God needs to light the fire in your heart again to have a desire to read His Word again to allow it to change you. You see, I want the same desire as Joan Wicks did for the Word of God. That's the passion I want. I want that passion of that mom riding that motorcycle through Vietnam to get the Word of God to people who desperately need it. I think we need to have a change of heart. And some of you here today, the reason why you are spiritually dry is because you haven't been digging into God's Word. I'm not talking about just, just say, okay, I'm going to read God's Word. I'm going to try to remember. I know God's Word, John 3, 16. That's not what I'm talking about. Because how many know that you can memorize this whole thing and it can be all up here and change nothing here? See, Joan got it. She got it up here. She got it down here. The woman in Vietnam got it. She got it up here, but she got it down here. And for some of you here today, you're treating the Word of God like a genie in a bottle where you feel like if you just rub that bottle, poof, God is going to answer your prayer. Don't, don't treat this thing like a genie in a bottle, like it's your good luck charm. Don't, don't play Bible roulette where you just... 
What does it say today? Okay, finally, brothers, pray. Okay, good. Thank you, Jesus. Let me go on my day. Listen. Read it. Apply it to your life. Pray that God would reveal to your heart what he wants to speak to your heart. And I'm going to tell you something. He will. God needs to do a revival in your heart today. And for some of you here today that you feel some spiritual apathy or maybe you feel some spiritual dryness, God has been waiting to show you today what he desires to do in your heart and how he wants to revive your soul once again from apathy to hunger and passion to know him. He wants you to wake up and say, you know, this is the day that the Lord has made. Amen, Sister Ruth, right? Let us rejoice and be glad. Where does that come from? It comes from the Word of God. God, your, your, your Word is a, a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. God, I want to know you. You want to know me. You haven't hidden anything from me. You've given me your very words that I can trust in and know it and know that you are good. That comes from reading God's Word and knowing it in your own heart. But here's the hard thing. The hard thing is applying it James says, just don't be hearers of God's word, but be doers. Apply it through your faith when you take a step of faith and start believing that God can change you. Some of you here, you've been battling with some addictions or things that you've been holding on to. It's because you haven't taken the step of faith and believe that God can truly heal you and deliver you from those things. He can. You've got to trust him. There's power in his word today. Because it's living and it's active. It's not dead words. It's not some ancient writings from some dead man, from dead men a long time ago. It's God's word. And it's just alive today as it was 2,000 years ago. It's living and it's active. And he wants to transform you today. So let me pray for you today. The band's going to come up. We're going to close in song. And in this song, I want it to be your prayer today. To, to maybe for some of you to reignite that passion that you need for God today. Listen, God's grace and mercy is available for all of you here today. So let's bow our hearts today and let's pray. How many would just say, Pastor Barden, that's me. That's me. I'm going to be honest with you today. I'm a little dry and I need God to light that fire in my heart today. I want to pray for you. How many by the race hand would say, Pastor, that's me. How many would be just bold and say, Pastor, that's, that's me today. Amen. Praise God. Thank you. God sees it. God knows what's going on in your heart. So Lord, we just come before you today. And God, we pray that you would reunite and renew us today. That you would ignite that passion in our heart to know your word. Not only to know it, but to allow it to change us. That, that we would be people that, that, that aren't trying to please you by how much we read or by how much we know. But that, God, we would have a passion to know your word because we want to know you. And know what you desire for us. And know that you care for us. And know that you have a will and a way for our lives when we read your word. So God, just ignite that flame in our hearts again that we might be changed and transformed by your word. God, help us to be students of your word. Help us to be doers of your word. And let us take it off the shelf and start reading it. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us everything possible to know you. Thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace. In Jesus' wonderful name. 
In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.